What if this morning you showed up and this building was completely destroyed? What if every church building in this city was burnt down and gone? Nowhere for any Christians to meet. Nowhere for them to go. Instead, they scatter to the edges of the valley and the state. Years of work in these places in this city cease. No one rebuilds. No one spends money to rebuild. No one picks up a hammer to rebuild the buildings. Imagine the state of a city without the body of Christ gathering for corporate worship and ministry in the city. Now jump forward 150 years and you are living a thousand miles from this place. I know that our family would drive for years for vacation from Southern California to here for vacation. It's about a thousand miles. Imagine being a thousand miles away from Missoula and someone coming to you, another believer in Christ and saying, I just came through Missoula. There's no church buildings. There's no church gathering for corporate worship. The buildings 150 years ago that were destroyed, they're still wiped out. And you hear this as a believer. What would your response be? Would you care? I'm a thousand miles away. What am I going to do about that? Would you feel bad about the state of the city of Missoula? Would you grieve and would you mourn and you, would you weep over the fact that God's people are scattered and they have no place to be? There's no leadership. This is the picture that we find in the first chapter of Nehemiah. 150 years after Jerusalem is destroyed. 150 years of captivity of God's people. And Nehemiah hears of the state of the people of God in Jerusalem, the city, still in its ruin. As we look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, the scriptural truth this morning is this. Grief over the state of the world and trouble for God's people should move us to petition our God for renewal and revival in our land. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I know that I, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Again, Father, I pray that you would give words to a man standing here to preach your truth. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us have understanding and apply it in our lives Father, let your glory be of great concern for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this book and we um, look at the first chapter, we look at the first three verses and we find that there's great trouble for God's people. Something that shouldn't be surprising that even in this world today, Christians around the world find themselves in places of great trouble. The persecution that comes upon all those who stand for the name of Jesus Christ. We should not be surprised, but we are when we see the church scattered. And here we have the nation of Israel, which is scattered. But at the same time, God said these things would happen if they turned from His word. So great trouble for God's people in verses 1 through 3. If you don't know the history or the background of what is happening here, we'll just briefly go through it. But I would encourage you to read the book of Ezra right before this. Read the book of Esther as you will see the timeline of these things in the nation of Israel fall into place. If you read 2 Kings specifically in chapters 17 and 25, you'll read of God sending the Assyrians and also the Babylonians to come and to punish the nation of Israel because they turned from God to worship Him. They worshiped idols, and God promised them many, many years before this, if you turn to other nations' gods and worship those idols, I will bring destruction upon you. I will send you into captivity, and then when my people turn from their ways and confess their sins, then I will restore them. This is this point that we come upon with Nehemiah in this chapter praying and confessing the sins of himself and the people and calling God to remember what you promised to your people. If you read the book of Ezra and you come to the point here in Nehemiah, we know from Ezra at least 49,000 people have returned to Jerusalem. They have rebuilt or tried to rebuild or rebuilt a, a, a smaller version of Solomon's temple. If you read about what Solomon built, it was in splendor and glory and what Ezra and that remnant that comes back is a very small version. And they begin to um, reestablish the sacrifices. They begin to reestablish some of the feasts that God called them to do. If you read the book of Esther, you will see a picture of the Jews who are in Persia, just like uh, where Nehemiah finds himself. And you can read of when Haman wanted to wipe all of them out. And God had placed Esther for just a time as that in which uh, God brought about um, salvation to his people. 
Here, Nehemiah, his name means Jehovah comforts or the Lord comforts. And that is what's needed in this time of trouble for the nation of Israel is for God to bring comfort for his people who have been facing uh, the oppression and the captivity for their turning away from the Lord. Some of the three big themes that you will see as you read Nehemiah, and again, every week I give you homework, go read Nehemiah this week. 13 chapters, spread it out over the week. Read chapter 1, even though we're going through it quickly today, it's kind of a, a, a flyby over, over the top, but go back and read uh, these chapters and the words of God. You will see the themes of obedience, you will see the theme of opposition, the enemy against God's people, and you will see overall completely from chapter 1 to chapter 13, God's sovereignty in fulfilling His plans for His people, and He gets all the glory. It's a wonderful book for you to read, not just some historical account, but to know this is what God has given us, His words for you and I to read, and not to just read a history lesson, but the Holy Spirit today to open our hearts, to open our eyes, our minds, our ears to the truths of God. It says in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It says, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, if you read the last verse, verse 11, it says he's the cupbearer to who? The king. And if you don't know which king this is, this is King Artaxerxes I of the Persian Empire, one of the greatest empires and rulers uh, in world history. He's in the capital city of Susa, which is about a thousand miles from Jerusalem. He's a thousand miles from there. We don't, we don't know if Nehemiah has ever been to Jerusalem uh, we don't know if during this time he was raised, obviously, in captivity. He serves the king, and as the cupbearer, he is one of the most trusted advisors of the king. He's the one who, as the king comes in, he takes the royal cup, and he cleans it, and he takes the wine and pours it into the cup, and he also tastes it in front of the king to make sure there's no poison, and he gives it to the king. Nehemiah is not some wimp when you read chapter 1. When you read throughout these 13 chapters, you will see that he is a leader among leaders. He does not back down when any of the opposition of the enemy comes and threatens, we're going to kill you. He stands his ground. He leads the people of God to what God has placed upon his heart to rebuild the walls. And yet it begins with grief and sorrow over the state of God's people. In verse 2, he speaks of Hanani, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And so these men have come back from Jerusalem, from Judah, and he's like, what's going on there? I want to have a report of what is happening. And they say, the remnant there, again, at least 49,000, there was a smaller group in uh, Ezra that came later, but we don't know how many. But over 49,000 uh, people are there. He says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by what? By fire. He says they're in great trouble. It's another word for meaning great evil. It says they're in shame or it also means reproach. God's city, even though the temple is being rebuilt and they're sacrificing to the Lord and there's some corporate worship going on, we don't get what they 
got back in that time, that when you had a city, you had walls and gates to keep the enemy out. And so even though they had rebuilt this temple, the gates were burnt the wall was torn down as we get into chapter 2 and Nehemiah inspects the wall. It's in, I mean, it's, it's a horrible mess. And therefore, God's people are gathering in his name in fear that the enemy could come and take them out at any moment and ransack what's left of the city. It's also a picture of the great, not just trouble physically, but spiritually of the city. You see, when you would have these walls to keep the enemy out, these gates that you would lock at night, I mean, imagine your home with no doors. Imagine your place that you sleep at at night where anyone can walk in and do anything where you live. That might bring some fear. And the enemy has come in and destroyed this place, taking some or most of the nation of Israel off into captivity, some that were left there, and now you have a return. The state of the city is in ruin. And as I reflected on the state of the city of Jerusalem, it brought me to the state of the city of Missoula and the state of the United States of America, the state of different countries in this world, not just physically, but to think of the spiritual state that we live in in this world. To come and to live in this city and to know that there is a spiritual darkness over the city of Missoula. To live in the United States of America and to know that there is a spiritual darkness over the country. To go to any place in this world and yes, to find believers who stand for Jesus Christ and His Word and the Gospel, but yet to know that we live and walk in a spiritually dark world should wake us up this morning. We should have a response like Nehemiah does when he realizes the state of the city of Jerusalem. I began to write a list of the things that we experienced in this city in the United States of America, in this world. And as I read and, and I think of these things and you look at the news and the stuff that some of us, as we've grown up in this place, to think of how much our world has changed. And yet, at the same time, the world has always been in darkness since the fall. We just are shocked more and more by how things are so blatant. To think of the secularization of the world, the secular education that has led to a decline of moral and ethical values in this nation. To know that that has resulted in the churches accepting things which maybe in the past we would never think we would accept. I mean, we think of the big things and say, well, we stand against those things like abortion or being open and affirming to the LGBTQ rights. But it's hard to ever hear a church ever speak against premarital sex or divorce that's not allowable by the words of Christ in Mark chapter 9. There are small things, sin, that we just put to the side now because we rank sin and these things don't affect us. It's only the big things. 
growing numbers of Christians, specifically here in the United States, becoming lukewarm, apathetic to the things that are going on, to think that we live in a world that consumerism and materialism has so influenced the culture that it influences the church, that what do we do as a church? Let's entertain people. Let's do whatever we can to get them in the door, and then let's entertain them while they're here so that we can have a gathering. This has happened for years. To read of statistics from studies by pastors for the last few years that here in the United States of America that fewer and fewer Christians nationally even attend a corporate weekly church service. Many have switched to just online, not because of physical problems, but just because they don't want to gather with the body of Christ. And we just go along with these things. And I think a lot of this sums it up in the fact that there's a departure from the true doctrine of the Word of God. We see this in churches across the world. We see this in denominations in the world. We see this in our own denomination. To depart from the historical Christian beliefs in God's Word weakens the faith of individuals and the body of Christ. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Every day I'm like, Lord, is this the day? Because when you read Genesis chapter 6, it paints a horrible picture of the world. All that anyone and everyone did was just wickedness. And Jesus is the one who said that. As it is in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And it's like, aren't we there yet? Don't we see this? And we always remember, though, that yes, we see the growth of sinfulness in this world, but we must not forget that from Genesis chapter 3 at the fall, when Adam sinned and when the sin was passed down to all mankind, that this is the darkness we live in. And so we're so surprised at times to see the sinfulness in the world, but I think we should be more surprised when we see the body of Christ living like the rest of the world. Go and read 1 Corinthians Paul wrote to the church in Corinth because the church was living like the world. He was laying out for the church in Corinth saying, it's hard to tell the difference between the church and the rest of the world. You're doing the same things. And he calls them repentance and to, to turn from their sins. And in 2 Corinthians, he writes them again. And he calls out, here's the good things that you're doing. But still continue to confess your sins and repent and turn from those things and follow the Lord. I wonder if we are ever grieved by the sinfulness in the world, by the sinfulness in the body of Christ. Are we grieved and do we mourn over that? Or do we think, well, I'm good. I'm a thousand miles away from that. It doesn't bother me. If you look at verse 4, Moved to weeping and mourning. That's what Nehemiah does. That's the response that happens in his life. I mean, again, he could just say to Hananiah and the rest of the guys, well, you know what, sorry, brother, bad, I'm sorry to hear that. I'll be praying for you. How easy is that for all of us as believers? You hear someone share something that's horrible, and you know, well, it doesn't affect me, or I'm not going to do anything about it. I'll pray for you, sister. I'll pray for you, brother. 
We read about reports about missionaries in this world, Christians in other country who are being imprisoned for the faith in Christ. Well, I'll pray for you. Maybe that is the only thing you can do. But is, is it just a word that flies out of our mouth? The number of times that people will say things that are in grievous uh, things in their life, like, I'll pray for you. Is that really something true of our hearts? Or are we moved to weeping and mourning? He says in verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for how long? It's for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Actually, if you go to chapter 2, you'll see between three and four months passes before he ever has a conversation with the king, when God lays out this plan for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, that for three to four months, Nehemiah is weeping and grieving and mourning. He's fasting and praying. And yet, I can tell you, it is very easy to say, I'll pray for that, pray one time, and continue on my day. Are we moved in our heart and grieved over sinfulness in the world? Again, that not just the walls of Jerusalem were torn down, but God's people were not gathered together to worship God for His glory. And God is very concerned for His glory, more so than we, even at our greatest moment. And so Nehemiah, concerned for God's glory and God's people, he wept, mourned, fasted, and he prayed. His heart was struck. Maybe that's what we need to pray. Lord, our hearts have been calloused and they're hardened to the things of this world. Would you put upon our hearts that we would see the things that you call us to grieve over in this world and in the church? Would you do the work that only you can do, Holy Spirit? Because I'm okay with this. It's not going to affect me. I don't have to do anything about it, so I'm just going to go along until it gets worse. Pray that the Holy Spirit would move our hearts to respond like Nehemiah. Do you walk around this city? Do you go to your schools and to your business places and to your neighbors? Do you see those who are lost and will die in their sins and go to hell for eternity and have the wrath of God upon them forever? Are you grieved over the fact that they reject Jesus Christ? Are you moved to weeping and mourning over not just your family members who need Jesus, but your neighbors, that enemy that you, that, that you hate, that they need Christ? Are you moved and mourning and weeping and praying and fasting over that? Over that God would open their eyes, that the Holy Spirit, like Jesus promises in John 17, would come and convict the world of sin, that they would see Jesus Christ crucified and risen again, and they would believe in faith and be saved. That should wrench our hearts this morning, that there are people outside of this wall, maybe even in this room as I speak to you this morning, or as you watch online, and you are completely lost, you have no regard for Jesus, and you're curious about God, and you need Jesus today. And all I can say to you is this, Jesus says to repent of your sins, to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, and you will be saved. He does the work. He doesn't expect you to jump through hoops, go to classes, give enough money, or attend churches. He simply says, believe in me that I died on the cross in your place for your sins, that I shed my blood for you so that you would be forgiven. And Jesus Christ bled, and he died, 
and he was placed in a tomb. And on the third day, church, what do we celebrate? The resurrection. Jesus is alive. He is risen. You're catching on that we don't say that just at Easter. I did it a couple weeks ago. It was like, he is risen indeed. I'm like, no, he is risen indeed. And so therefore, for all who are in Christ, our hope is in Jesus. That when we read, as Jesus says, so in the days of Noah will be coming to the Son of Man. We look around, we should be grieved, but we should also say, Lord, you're coming. You're coming soon. And I long for you and wait for you because you've promised and you said and you will fulfill. And that's what we long for. And that's what we rejoice in. And that's what we stand in our faith but while we do that, we must pay attention to Nehemiah here. Nehemiah, when you read about what he does and how he leads the people, you don't have anything which he says, well, as soon as I heard, I sat down, got my notebook out, and I started writing plans. Now, if we did the city this way and I got this many people, and let me see, I need about this much in funds, and if we could just get this lumber here and, and write a plan, because you and I, as Americans, are good at making plans. We are. We're taught that. Make plans, set a goal, and get it done. And so that's what we do, and that happens in the church today. And that could have been a temptation for Nehemiah. But instead, he weeps and mourns. There's no plans that you see put together. We'll read that God puts the plan upon his heart Again, which is a glorious thing that God is sovereign and he will be the one who brings about his plans. And if his plans are to lead us as a church or as a people in certain ways, he's going to put it on our hearts. He's going to confirm it from his word. He's going to provide all the things that are needed and he gets glorified in all of it. We're just being obedient. Nehemiah didn't throw his hands up and say, man, there's nothing I can do. I'm working for the king. I can't get out of this. Turn back a page or two to the book of Ezra. One of the prayers that Ezra prays, uh, I mean, you could go back and read through, um, it's brought to his attention that the people of God that have returned, the people that have stayed there, um, have continued in their sinfulness, that God declared to the nation of Israel, do not intermarry with all these other nations because what will happen is your hearts will long after their false gods, their idols, and you will begin to worship them. And they tell Ezra, this is exactly what has happened. And here's Ezra's prayer. Verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been given into the hand of the king of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. That's Ezra's response to the church, the Israel, intermarrying and worshiping other idols. 
one of the many sins in the nation of Israel that God warned them repeatedly of and says, don't do this or here will be the result and the result will be I'll send you into captivity. And as they returned, Ezra himself grieves. He says he can't even look to heaven. He blushes before the Lord because of the shame and the guilt of God's people. And this is the same type of response you see in Nehemiah for months at a time. And as I was reflecting on Nehemiah's concern for God's glory and his love for God's people, it made me think about God's great love for his people and his glory. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name what? Jesus, for he will save his people from their what? Sins. Do you know that God loves you so greatly? Do you know that he loves you so much that he would send Jesus Christ? That he would send his only son to die for you in your place because of your sinfulness and the punishment of your sin, which is eternal death in hell. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus to save you. And Jesus did all that work. I know I've asked you a bunch of different ways already, but how do you respond? How do you respond to the spiritual walls that are broken down in this city, in this nation, and in this world? Do you go on and continue to ignore it, just saying, I'm just waiting for the day of Christ's return. I'm retired now. I've already done mission work. I've done all these things. I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm just going to enjoy my devotionals every morning. I'm going to go to church and go to the Bible studies. But you know what? I'm just kind of waiting until the Lord comes in. Lord, take me on sleep. I know you pray that. I pray that, Lord, when it's my time to go, if you haven't returned, just take me in my sleep. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to go through all this trouble. I don't want to lose everything. We pray those types of things, but are we broken over the state of our sin and the state of the church's sin and the state of the sinfulness of this world? Are we broken by the spiritual decline in our country, in our city? Are we broken over the state of non-believers, those who need salvation? Are we broken over the departure from the Word of God by brothers and sisters in Christ, by denominations, by churches, by even our own? One of the things that grieves me most by some of the pastors in our denomination and some of the believers in our denomination, when we come to this aspect that there is a clear doctrinal difference that has changed in our denomination, I have had pastors and other believers say, yes, I agree with you, that's right on Scripture. But because we don't have to ordain pastors in our church we, that are women, we don't have to place women in our church, it's not going to bother me. I'll wait until or if they ever would go to this point. And I'm grieved over that. I'm grieved that those words would even come out of any believer's mouth. It's not affecting us so we don't have to do anything about it because we've always been CMA. We need to be CMA. And I know I'm hitting some hard points here, but these are questions I was asked this week. Responses that I've heard this week, not just here, but from pastors on phone calls, from responses from other believers. We should be grieved when any believer or any church departs from the Word of God. Look at verses 5 through 11. Here's the prayer he prays. A prayer of repentance and renewal. This is what we need to pray. 
you see that Nehemiah knows the words of God. He brings up God's covenant. He brings up God's promises. He repeats back to him what God has already declared. So Nehemiah knows the word of God. Even in captivity, he reminds him of the things that God promised to Moses. He knows the word of God. And this is his prayer. You want to know how to pray, church? Read the word of God. If you want to be directed in how to pray according to the will of God, read the Word of God because the Word of God will shape and direct what you should be praying for, what we should be asking of God. You see, Nehemiah believed that only God could bring about any restoration and revival among God's people, that only God could bring about spiritual restoration in our country or in our city or in our churches or in our denomination. You think about Jonah when he went to the city of Nineveh, 120,000 people had no regard for God. He declares that God was going to bring his wrath upon them. And what did 120,000 people do? They repented. That's the key word here. And Jonah, he of little faith, ran. Lord, I knew you were going to do this, that, or whatever. And God had mercy and spared that city. It wasn't until a hundred years later when the people had turned from, the, from God and God wiped out the city of Nineveh. But God is the one who brings about revival. He's the one who strikes hearts and calls people to repentance. It's the Holy Spirit of God that softens our hearts and draws us to Him. Again, He didn't re- rush into the king with the cup in his hand. King, I've got, here's your, here's, your, here's your wine. Hey, I need to go to Jerusalem. You need to send me and all this stuff. He doesn't even bring it up to the king until the king in chapter 2 says, what's going on with Nehemiah who's all sad today? Look at verses 5 through 11. We see these three things in his prayer. That he worships the Lord through prayer. That he confesses his specific sins and the corporate sins of the nation in prayer. And he petitioned the Lord in his prayer. Verse 5 Nehemiah says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps what? Covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He begins focusing on the greatness of God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. As Nehemiah prays, he focuses in on on God's greatness and God's majesty and God's glory and God's might. Isaiah chapter 40 is one of my favorite Old Testament chapters in the Bible. I'll read just a portion of it here in verse 21. It says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth emptiness. If you read that chapter, it's like, who can you compare God with? A piece of wood? A piece of clay? I mean, again, and to think, the nation of Israel would bow down, would worship, would burn incense to these Asherah poles and all these types of idols and it's worshiping as God. And yet the Word of God's like, they can't speak. They can't see you. They can't hear your prayers. And yet the nation of Israel was sold a lie and believed a lie to worship all these other gods, which the Apostle Paul says, worshiping other gods or worshiping demons. 
And so the nation of Israel had literally become demon worshipers. That's the seriousness of where we're at. That's why God promised them and said, I will send affliction upon you. I will send the armies upon you. You will go into captivity because you're worshiping demons. And then in captivity, when I hear my people pray and call out to me, I will show mercy and I will restore them. And I think of that and how God saves us by the grace of God through Jesus Christ at the cross. That when we see our sinfulness and we hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we call out and say, Lord, save me. Because there's nothing else that we could do. There's nothing else that we can trust in but Jesus Christ alone. He uses terms in his prayer, O Lord God of heaven, you see that in, in, in Ezra, Nehemiah, and the book of Daniel, are the places that call out to the O Lord God of heaven. When he says God who keeps covenant, this is not only a major thing of the Old Testament, but it's a theme of the Bible that God has made a covenant with his people and he will always fulfill his covenant for his glory. Therefore, he does the work to save his people because he is faithful and his people are not. We fail but God never fails. That's why when you read of God's people failing in the covenant that God made with them, Jesus sends the one to fulfill what was required. Jesus Christ crucified, risen again, making a relationship with his people today that we can enter into the Holy of Holies because there's no longer a curtain there. And this is what we rejoice in. This is what we praise the Lord Jesus Christ in. Look at verses 6 and 7 briefly here. Here he prays in this verses 6 through 7. There's this confession of sin against God. There's confession of sin against God in this prayer. It says there in verse 6, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. He already told them this would happen. But if you return to me and keep commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Wow. In verses 6 and 7, you see, Nehemiah confesses sin. He confesses individual sin, he confesses his family sin, and he confesses corporate sin. He says, even I and my father's house, the psalmist writes in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You hear Nehemiah when he calls out, Lord, hear my prayer, listen to me, answer. Your word says this, so answer according to your word. But before he even asks in verse 11, he says, We've acted very corruptly. He confesses the general sins that we've sinned against you, and then he addresses specific sins. He says, we've broken your commandments. We've gone against your statutes and your rules. And so he's very general. We've sinned against you, God, and here's how we've sinned in these different ways. We've sinned individually, and we've sinned corporately. Would you forgive us? Would you pour your grace upon us? Would you show us mercy as, Paul, as John writes in 1 John 1, to confess your sins to the Lord, for He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all what? 
and righteousness. What are the specific and the general sins individually in this room and corporately in the body of Christ that we need to confess before the Lord God Almighty? That God would continue to do a work of the spiritual state of His people, not just here in this building, at this gathering, but in this city where the believers gather, in this country. There's always talk about, we just need revival. Revival will only happen if God declares it would do so. That He would do that work, and we see that He calls us to pray for that. Are we praying for revival and renewal in this place and in this world and among the people of God? In verses 8 through 10, you see this third part of prayer, petitioning God uh, for His promises, petitioning God for His promises. He says, remember. Now, let me ask you this. Does God forget His promises? Do we need to remind God of what He said now, I'll tell you, I have foolishly reminded God before. God, you said this, you did this, you know, because I wanted something for my prayers to be answered in a wrong manner here. But you have this reminders, he says. He says, God, remember what you said to Moses. Well, what did God say to Moses? We'll read Leviticus, I think it's 26, and I can't remember, it's in Deuteronomy. Uh, here's a summary of it in Second Chronicles. Go to Second Chronicles, a few... Uh, Books back here from where you're at in Nehemiah. Go to the left in Second Chronicles chapter 6. Here's a summary in three verses of what Nehemiah is saying. Remember what you said to Moses. It says, verse 36, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, yet... If they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. That summarizes Israel's life of worshiping God, turning to worship demons and idols, being oppressed and the enemy coming against them and them calling out and repenting of their sins and God restoring them. This was the life cycle of the nation of Israel. And I wonder at times if it's the life cycle of the church. Do we worship God and stand in His Word and then we turn to something new in culture because, ah, oh, that sounds good. And then we realize, oh, wow, God's Word doesn't say that. And then we turn and repent and the Lord continues to bless His people. Not that He ever removes His promises as He's promised to all you who are in Christ that He has an inheritance set for you in heaven that one day that you will be with Him for eternity. That never perishes. It never goes away. And He does not remove it from His people. 
So we rest and trust in that, and at the same time, we evaluate our hearts. Lord, am I swaying from the solid Word of God to these other myths and these things and these things of the world which are presented just so that it, because it sounds and feels better? May the Lord rend our hearts. In verse 11, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants. So he's not the only one praying. There's others who are praying with him who delight to fear in your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He says, now I was the cupbearer of the king. In closing, think about how we pray. Do we pray in general? Father, bless me. Father, bless those people. Father, thank you for everything. Father, bless those people in everything. Are we just general and throw those things out? Or do we pray like Nehemiah? Give us success, Lord. Grant us mercy. Change the hearts of the lost. Build up your church. I mean, you read Nehemiah this week. In all 13 chapters, you'll find 11 times that Nehemiah specifically stops and prays specifically and asks God to answer. Specific prayer. There's always so much more but I think we need to pray. Before we, as the body of Christ, take bread and cup together, I want us to pray. And in this moment, that we would ask the Lord to work upon our hearts, work upon the hearts, work, work upon the hearts of all the believers in this world, work upon the hearts of the non-believers that the Lord would bring us to them and declare the gospel and they would be saved that we would be like Nehemiah this morning before coming to the table and that we would confess our sins before the Lord and at the same time rejoicing that he already paid the price for our sins. But he calls us to continue a confession of sins and relying on him. Would you pray for this church, the churches in the city? Would you pray for our denomination, the denominations in this world? Will you pray for the people of God that are serving and being persecuted all around the world those who are scattered, hiding in places because they have no place to meet, the enemy coming against them. So let us pray. Father, hear our prayers. In this moment together, your people are burdened over the spiritual state in this world. Father, if we're not burdened by it, would you cause us to mourn and to grieve and to weep and to pray and to fast over the lost, over the churches struggling, over those who are being lukewarm and apathetic. Father, would you build in our hearts the ability to pray as Nehemiah prayed, as Ezra prayed, as we see prayers throughout Scripture, that we would pray specifically according to your word. We ask that your word would be heavy upon our hearts every single day, that we could not just go about our day and go to school and go to work and visit with neighbors and family and travel without your word impacting our hearts. Father, we pray that you would help us to grow in our love for Jesus and our love for his word. Would you help us not to be a people who compromise, 
because the world wants us to be all about the things of this world, to amass stuff for ourselves, things that we cannot take with us, things that rust and destroy and fall apart. Father, we pray and ask that you would rend our hearts, that you would move us to our knees in prayer, that you would do the work that only God can do to bring about revival, to bring about repentance of hearts, to bring people to their knees before you, to call out to Jesus and be saved. We pray for this city that is in spiritual darkness and the number of believers in this city that are few compared to the people who live here. We pray that you would build up the believers in this city. We pray that you would strengthen them in the truth of your word. We pray that you would give them your words, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to declare the truth to those living in darkness. And we pray, Jesus, that you would save those living in darkness. Father, it is not any insignificant prayer to pray that you would save this entire city as you did a work in Nineveh. Father, I pray that this city would wave the flag of Jesus Christ over it. That this city would see revival because of repentance of sins and turning to Jesus. We cannot do this. And so we humbly ask that you would. Father, as we, in fellowship and in unity, take bread and cup together, may you be glorified in this moment. Would you help us to reflect and also rejoice in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.